Hey now, other people call me Paul, including my mom, who probably was the first one to do that. Becky, do you think your mom was the first one to say, oh, look at little Rebecca? Mm. Well, she doesn't have an Eastern European accent, so (laughs) she definitely didn't say what you just said, but yeah, she probably was. I think um, I have a, yeah, there's a funny story related to that birth if you want to hear it, but maybe I'll leave that for another time. All right. These intros, we got to keep them tight, Becky. And and clean. Yeah. I think, I I, I do think both of our names are pronounced pretty much the same, um, whether we're in the United States or Canada, though. Paul and Becky are kind of hard to reimagine, but I'm not sure if our guests Today, you can say the same. We that, we call her Debbie, but up there, it might be like Deborah. Doesn't that seem like a thing? I don't know. I guess we'll just have to ask. We really could because she does hail from the great frigid north. I don't is Does she like winter down here in Michigan like a goose? I don't know. That might be like a lazy goose I'm thinking about. I don't know. Or disoriented. You only make it to Michigan. I think Lake Michigan is the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> now I just want to know how far south Canadian geese migrate. Hey, Alexa. Ale- uh, I don't have Alexa. All right. Well, let's hike up our long johns. Say hi to Debbie. All right. So, hi, my name is Debbie Harrington, and I feel both challenged and energized by three-dimensional learning. Hey, Debbie. Welcome to the realm of the podcast. My first time. Everything's a little uh, dirtier and grimier and maybe less polite down here. It's pretty much the opposite of Canada, so I'm a little worried about what you'll think of it. Um, are you from like the Peg or Cowtown or some other place with a cool nickname? No, I'm I'm from Gravenhurst, Ontario. So I'm from Muskoka, cottage country. Uh, can you give us another landmark? <laughs> An hour and a half north of Toronto. Oh, okay. That's pretty much like the Alabama of Canada, right? The deep south. <laughs> no out there in the listening world you could not see debbie's face there <laughs> cottage country it's cottage country it's where everybody goes in the summer uh, okay oh. that sounds nice do you ever go to timmy's and order a double double in timbits not a double double regular one cream one sugar <laughs> So if people vacation, if people vacation a lot up there, like, do you have, um, you know, like in Northern Michigan, they'd have nicknames for like the fudgies who come up and vacation, you know, near Traverse City or Mackinac or whatever. Is there a nickname for the people who would infiltrate in the warmer months? Not really. I mean, the cottagers, but we always have a joke that they always look for one of three places. It's either the liquor store, the beer store, or that boat. <laughs> because where I'm from, there's a, it, there's lots of little lakes and they have a steamship 
one of the old steamships. It's actually still a steamship that was one of the original ones that used to, Gravenhurst is like the gateway to Muskoka. So people would get there and then they'd take the steamship all over Muskoka mm. to the various parts. Mm. So. so that boat, they still run tours. Wow. Did you ever consider like fleeing back to Canada? I'm going to make up some random years now, say 2016 or 2020. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my plan was never to stay in the U S I, I came mm-hmm. down to get my PhD at Purdue and the plan was always to go back to Canada and that didn't happen. Although I have, I have thought about fleeing many times. <laughs> Most recently, when there was some unrest in D.C., my mother decided it was time for me to come back. Hmm. She's like, I think you've been down there long enough. <laughs> wow. Except I can't cross the border right now. So, Still? Is it mm. still closed? Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yep. Staying with the geographic theme, I guess. Among all of our guests so far, Debbie has the closest proximity to me google says i could walk to allendale in like six hours but i'm pretty sure to do it in like four (laughs) you are a professor of chemistry at grand valley state university for um for someone who may not be familiar could you what's the deal with gvsu so grand valley state university our main campus is in allendale michigan which is not too far outside of grand rapids we also have a grand rapids campus so we are really close to lake michigan we are what i call a really big small school so we have almost twenty-five thousand students the vast majority of them are undergraduates i'm going to say 22 to 23,000 of them mm. are undergraduates we have a few masters programs and i think we have one doctoral program so almost everything is undergraduate i'm in the chemistry department we only have undergraduate programming and so i think that is what i when i tell people about grand valley i say we try and do the best we can with undergraduate education because that's our main mission and we're not trying to become the next university of michigan or michigan state Mm -hmm. we want to do undergraduate education really well so because we don't have a lot of graduate programs we don't have teaching assistants the faculty are in the classroom more people come here largely because they want to teach faculty go 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 there yeah Yeah. not not that we don't have great research because we do Mm -hmm. um we have uh we offer lots of really good undergraduate research opportunities but i would say that teaching is our main job so outside of your label as a chemistry professor how else do you define your identity there how do you do how do you interact with other uh, communities or i don't know centers institutions whatever you got going on there So I'm a member of our integrated science program, which is a bunch of science education faculty from all the different disciplines. We oversee our teacher education in in elementary and secondary science. We also do lots of different science education research. I oversee our STEM grant for science and engineering majors. I'm a chemical education researcher, so I get to marry my teaching and my research, which is nice. Um, So Mm -hmm. I get to focus on teaching, but 
use my research to enhance that. I also run a few other projects. I have a few NSF funded projects right now, so I interact a lot a lot with our grants office. And I happen to be the chair of our chemistry department currently, so I also interact with all of the other department chairs across the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, which is a large group. And then outside of Grand Valley, I have some collaborations with um, some other universities, a large one with uh, MSU and and some other universities. So Florida International University and Kansas State. I work with Ryan Stowe at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with his high school teachers. And I am currently on the board of publications for the Journal of Chemical Education and work with the Division of Chemical Education with the ACS. So So that sounds like it fills up your like Monday through Wednesday, probably Thursday, (laughs) Friday. On the weekends, I coach soccer. You know, you're talking to someone successful when they're five or six deep in the list and then they go, and I'm the chair. You know, and then there were still three or four more at least on the list. So I feel like I should know this, but I really don't know how you got tangled up with the MSU crew, the Michigan State people. Hmm. I had the opportunity to do a sabbatical a few years ago. And because I have two, well, they're not so small now. I have one in grade nine and one in grade eight. But a few years ago, they were smaller. I had two small children, and my husband's a high school teacher, and so I couldn't actually go any place far away. But I wanted to actually go something, go someplace and do something a little bit different. And Melanie Cooper had recently moved to MSU, and so I contacted her, and we had coffee at an ACS meeting, and I pitched the idea of doing a sabbatical with her group, and she was gracious enough to let me do that. So... I, I came and I got to work with them, and then I got the experience of teaching a general chemistry course at MSU. And I'm used to, you know, somewhere between 70 and sometimes up to 150 mm-hmm. students in my class, but 350 was a little bit, a little bit more than I was used to. And uh, it was an interesting experience. It was a good experience, but I like my a little bit smaller classes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've had your fingers in higher ed and your toes in K-12 for a while, maybe the other way around, I don't know. But um, I think that's, you know, a situation that we definitely need more of. Um, for you, what were the chickens and the eggs? Were you in a were you, were you in a high school classroom before going all poindexter on us or? <laughs> I, I was. I, uh, I actually did a master's degree in chemistry and decided that research was chemistry research, lab research was not my thing. So I went back and got my high school teaching certification in science and math and taught high school science. It's a little bit different in Ontario because you do general science first and then you split out. So I taught some general science. I taught chemistry. I taught math, everything up through calculus. Wow. And then I decided to go back and get my PhD because I found out you could do a PhD in chemistry education in the U.S. And so that's how I ended up at at Purdue. Cool. I should explain my poindexter. Uh, That's not typically in my, um, you know, verbal arsenal to to use the the poindexter phrase. But I saw this thing on the Internet. I don't, is it a meme if it's just words? Do you have to have a picture for it to be a meme? Good I think you have to have a picture, but I'm not okay. sure. 
Well, I don't know what this was in because it was just words, but it was said it was like a I don't know. Was it a tweet, Paul? We you know. know you're not very up on the Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> not a tweeter. I'm trying to. Okay, so it said scientist says, "Hey, check this out. We're about to land a space exploration vehicle on Mars, and we're going to watch it happen." And then Joe Public says, "Wow, I can't even start to imagine how you did that. It's so amazing." And the scientist says, "Cloth mask keep virus in." And Joe Public says, "Keep keep walking, Poindexter." <laughs> but um, so as clearly as you know, there's only a few months of aging and maturity, and according to Diane, beard guzzling between being <laughs> school. Forgot about that. <laughs> between the end of your high school career and you know walking into a college class, what are some of the what are some of the more important differences between teaching in, say, a high school classroom and a college classroom? Well, one of the things when you're teaching high school in general is you see your students every day and you see them for longer periods of time in smaller groups. Mm. So I think you get a chance to know your students a lot better. And, and also you generally see them not just in your classroom, but outside of your classroom doing extracurricular things or sports. I mean, when I was a high school teacher, mm-hmm. I coached basketball as well. So I saw students in, in that environment. I think that the expectation in college is that students are a lot more independent and that they are going to do more work on their own. And as you say, there, there's only a few months between the time they leave high school and, and they get to college. And, and so sometimes that expectation, they're not ready for it. And so I think I, I learned that I had to provide a lot more scaffolding and structure for mm-hmm. students to help them develop that. But they have to be a little bit more motivated. A lot of the things that that you do in the classroom in high school, you're expecting students to do outside of the classroom at college because you just don't have as many hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you t- right. total up the hours that you have with students, you have sometimes about half the number of hours in college as you do in high school. I also think that for me, anyway, I have bigger classes. You know, my classes now in general chemistry are around 70 to 80. And that's still, I still work really hard to get to know my students' names in those classes. Mm-hmm. But that's about all I know about them a lot of the times is their names. Right. Whereas often in high school, I know more about my students because I see them, right? I will meet a number of their parents, learn a lot about students when you meet their families. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in terms of the the types of things I expect from them in terms of what they know or can be able to do with chemistry knowledge, I don't know that it's it's all that different. I can relate to the coaching and family things. That's kind of what I remember about you know that <laughs> more than well I don't know it's, it's like it has kind of a rosier tint than stand in than the uh, you know forcing the math down the throat thing. <laughs> Yeah. Have you told the audience what your former life was, Paul? They might not know. Um, everybody knows Becky. No. I don't think <laughs> I don't, so. I don't think we. I don't think we've uh, gone. We can't there. find you on Twitter, so I don't think they know. <laughs> I don't have an online presence, though. 
Isn't that a red flag when you don't have an online presence at all? (laughs) (laughs) My name's so boring. It's always been my excuse that no one could find me even if I was. There's a Paul Nelson like singer somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. I was a you know a science person, then teacher, then K twelve teacher, high school math, and um, doing whatever this is. I'm podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what that's what my CV looks like. Good job, Paul. Um, so you know, thinking about your experiences, what are what are some of the ways that that, that the relationship between people in those two realms, K twelve and higher ed, could be more symbiotic or mutually beneficial? You think? Yeah, well, I I feel like that's something that I've been working on uh, largely since I got to Grand Valley. So shortly after I got here, Ellen Uzerski, who's now at Miami University in Ohio, and I started the Target Inquiry Program, which was originally a professional development program for high school chemistry teachers and then morphed into middle school and high school science teachers. Hmm. The goal there was really to help teachers better teach their students about what science is. So although the focus there was was inquiry instruction, it was based on the national science education standards, which were kind of the precursors to the next gen science standards. Mm -hmm. Our kind of take on inquiry was teaching students science by having them actually do the things that scientists do, right? So analyze data, explanations, evaluate different claims, design procedures, ask questions. So uh, if for those people who are familiar with the science practices and three-dimensional learning, they all sound <laughs> really mm-hmm. similar. Right. But when I taught high school, I had a master's degree in chemistry. And so I found that my take on teaching was very different from a lot of people who had never actually done science. I mean, I wasn't afraid for mm. my students to experiment for things to not go right because I was used to that. And and we could le- use that as a learning opportunity because that's what scientists do. And they actually tend to learn a lot from when things don't go the way they planned or when they don't go right and they're problem solving And so that was the first part of our target inquiry program is we brought teachers in and they did actual science research with one of our faculty Hmm. members so that they could get this firsthand experience of what it is scientists do. It does seem like a missed opportunity that there aren't more relationships between people who have a great depth of knowledge about a discipline and people who have a great depth of knowledge about pedagogy. I would would love to see more of that. I would love to see, you know, more partnerships like Mm -hmm. that. So we should probably talk about 3DL at some point. I think mm-hmm. we're getting there maybe. Um, <laughs> is it called so, the 3DL podcast? I don't know. I mean, it is. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's called yeah 3DL for, you know, under all that thing. So in the spirit of our uh, kind of our uh, kind of oblique focus, I guess, today, how would you explain 3DL in just a quick few sentences to like a, an eight-year-old or a little, you know, your nephew or something? I would say that 3DL is learning science by doing science, by doing what scientists do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, what do scientists do? <laughs> they, do lots, they do lots of different things. <laughs> they type on their computers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's kind of how I, I view it. That's how I viewed inquiry instruction, right. which is kind of the... The precursor to 3DL, but I think inquiry had so many different definitions depending on 
who you talk to. And so three-dimensional learning just has a lot more structure to it, right? Like there are specific mm -hmm. science practices that were that we're focusing on and, you know, core, they've identified the core content for each of the science disciplines and then the, the cross-cutting concepts. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 f I feel like it gives a little bit more structure to trying to do good inquiry instruction, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned target inquiry kind of being based on the uh, National Science Education Standards, which I think came out in the mid '90s, right? Like mm -hmm. 95, 96. or something. Ninety-six. And then the framework and three-dimensional learning came roughly, I don't know, fifteen years later. And like you said, you know, they were a little more specific, like maybe a little more usable or whatever. Like, so my question is, what you know, if you project out fifteen or twenty years from three DL, like. What's the next iteration? What do you see? What do you see? You know, 3DL still needing to be more productive. Like, what's the next iteration of, you know, standards or a framework like this that is helpful for thinking about what scientists know and do, or how students can do what scientists know and do? That's a softball, Debbie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I don't know that we need a new framework, right? Like, I, I think 3DL did a good job of better defining making more specific what it is the the national science education standards wanted to do i think the other thing that is true about the next generation science standard is that many states have adopted them or some form of them mm -hmm. right whereas the national science education standards came out but they weren't really adopted mm. by states but what I think if we're really going to see this done and done well is we need more people to have the foundational beliefs um, mm. that, that 3DL is grounded in. Like, why is this a good way for people to learn science? Why is, why is this more productive or more effective? And because, you know, the research tells us that if your underlying beliefs about teaching and learning are not aligned with whatever curriculum, that that people just take the curriculum and they adapt it to match their underlying hmm. beliefs about hmm. teaching and learning. So we need to really help people develop the beliefs about teaching and learning. Like, what is the purpose of learning learning science and it's not just to be able to calculate ph or to be able to complete an ice table in chemistry mm -hmm. it, it, it's really about science is about exploring and explaining the natural world i guess just for uh maybe for some of our listeners i don't know so it's on the record we should make it clear that um it's the, you know, the National Research Council's framework for K-12 science education mm -hmm. that informed the NGSS. And then, so that was the original intent and the focus was in the K-12 setting. And then our little corner of this ecosystem is to kind of discuss and apply what we've learned from the experiences of the people who've tried it in higher ed. Um, so kind of backing up on that, Debbie, um, I think this is, well, your typical like U.S. K-12 science teacher knows what three-dimensional learning is, correct? Or am I jumping the gun I think there? they would have heard of it. 
I don't know that all of them necessarily can envision what it should look like in a classroom Mm. for a variety Mm. of reasons. Most of them were not taught that way. Mm. Right. A number of them have not had any experience actually doing science research to understand what it is that scientists actually do when they're doing research. And I think teachers feel a lot of pressure to prepare students for college, right? Like you hear this all the time. And mm-hmm. if they view college instruction as being the more traditional stuff that that we're used to, the, the memorize and regurgitate and solve the mathematical problems, mm-hmm. then that's what they feel like they have to be doing in their classroom. Yeah. And so we we need to shift that too. So I, I think, I mean, doing this in higher ed and changing the expectations in higher ed also has the potential of, of changing some of our, our high school instruction because these teachers are largely, I mean, you don't go into high school teaching for the money. You mm. go into high school teaching because you care about students. And so they care about their students and they want them to be well-prepared. And so if we change the focus of, you know, being well-prepared is not, can I convert grams to moles or balance a chemical equation, but can I explain why the boiling point of ethanol is higher than the boiling point of dimethyl ether, then that well, that will that will trickle down to high school because they really want their students to be successful. I also think that if we can help teachers see that developing an understanding of these core concepts or core ideas helps students to do all the other things that they think of when they think of traditional chemistry instruction, that 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 will also help. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a an attempt I made with my little math department, you know, in my high school, and I and I was like, we should go to a college classroom, right? You know, like just like you were saying, we're trying to get, we're trying to prepare our students for college, and so we went and we sat down in the back of the class, and it was just doing problem, doing the guy doing problems out of the book, um, mm. and everybody else is copying it down, and. So it, it totally backfired. I I feel like because <laughs> we went wasn't back very to inspiring. Our... <laughs> well, it led you know, and so that the the teachers that went with us, a few of them were like, uh, maybe we you know maybe we should just be drilling, killing, standing, and talking, and like that's what they're getting ready for. That's a real mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Well, I always used to say that you know if we in in higher ed if we have problems with K-12 and how they teach science, it's our fault because they learned Mm. how to teach science from us. Like that's where they learned their science. And so if we want them to do it differently, then that's on us too. Mm -hmm. I hate that, that blame game where, um, and here's where I'll bring in my, um, the birthing reference for this episode. Uh, Um, (laughs) So I feel like, you know, there's, there's always a blame game, right? Like they didn't, students didn't learn it before. They didn't learn it in high school and high school. Oh, they didn't learn it in middle school. And you know, you can follow the chain all the way back. And so I always call it the breastfeeding argument. Like that baby didn't, you know, they weren't breastfed. They had this, 
you know, and then they didn't develop and they weren't, you know, and then they, when they were in preschool, they, whatever, they acted out where, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like it doesn't matter, right? Like it doesn't matter. And my mom, who was also a high school teacher um, for, for many years, she, she would always say like, you teach who gets off the bus. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It doesn't matter where they were before. Like you teach who gets off the bus. And so. Well, I think that's another big difference between high school and college that a lot of people don't recognize is that the the range of your students, you know, what they're coming into your classroom mm-hmm. with in high school is so much broader than college. And I mean, college faculty think that our range is huge. But in high school, it's even bigger because you have to you have to know that, you know, the num- the students you get in your classrooms in college are largely, you know, the top whatever percentage of their class. Mm-hmm. And so you're dealing with an even wider range in high school and you need to meet the needs of all of those students. You can't just pitch it to the, the middle and expect everybody else to <laughs> fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what, as we uh, think about helping or encouraging others to try to change, as you say, we can, we can be real sticklers about doing it this way, you know, doing our check boxes on our three laps and our laps and everything. Or we can be like, hey, these are the, pra- these are the science practices. Try one out. Um, as you're helping, as you're starting it, somebody who's just coming into this, what do you, where, do you, where do you start with things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I think the big thing for me is to start with the practice, right? To think about the practice and think about how would I assess whether or not students are able to do this? Um, I was at a virtual conference the other day listening to a talk and they talked about assessment being the hidden curriculum. Hmm. Right. Students value what we assess and they focus on what we assess. So if we think about how would we assess whether somebody can do this or not, then I think that helps you to structure your instruction to get them there. And and I think that is the biggest change in my instruction came from my assessment. So before I might ask students, you know, to tell me which of three different substances would have the the highest boiling point. Um, And I might even ask them why, but not always, because if they were able to get the right one, I would assume they had the correct reasoning. And when I started asking them why, I realized they didn't necessarily have the correct reasoning, right? So making them explain things um, became much more important. But then that transferred into my instruction because I realized in my instruction I couldn't stop by you know asking students formatively which one has the higher boiling point we always had to go further and and why and when I start asking why on assessments and getting students answers I then start understanding some of the other pieces of knowledge that they're bringing in to bear on this that are Mm. not productive and so I can start to address those in my teaching, right? I can even pull up, here are three possible explanations. Mm-hmm. You know, which one is correct? And for the other two, why are they not correct? Why don't they work? 
to to really get them to to think about some of these other these pieces of knowledge that they're bringing in and i mean they have good reasons for bringing some of them in but they are not productive for that particular topic and getting mm. them to understand why sure so i think starting you start with assessment, that whole backwards design, like what is it you want them to be able to do and how are you going to assess that? And everything else comes from that. And I, it's, it needs to be baby steps. Like, you know, I, when I started doing this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to design one good question on my, on my exam that gets at you. Like, what are the, what is the key, really key thing that I want them to know from this you know, three weeks or four weeks or however much. And that's, you know, one good question. I can do that. And I still want them to have, I mean, you still want them to develop some of those skills. You know, one good question that really assesses what I think is most important for them to know and be able to do. And I felt like that was doable, right? Mm -hmm. If I only have to do one, if I have to have a, try to put together a whole exam of them, I'm out. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't <laughs> quit. Right. And, yeah. and then same kind of thing when I started revamping some of my instructions. Sometimes it was, okay, so I'm, I'm covering a week on this. Like, can I develop one activity or two activities, right, to address two different practices that week that, that they're engaged in? You can mm -hmm. add more in as you go, but, like, just start mm -hmm. small. One a week. Yeah. And it doesn't take that much to adapt some of some of the things you do right yeah. instead of you showing students how you know the data supports something give them the data and ask them to to draw some conclusions based on that data and explain why so i think what i hear you saying is these things are research-based and it's great if it's high fidelity but a pretty big pretty good practice is a pretty good start um I think largely if you can get a practice in there, you probably have the the other pieces, mm. especially if you, you know, if you've thought about like, this is the really important thing from this unit. Well, if it's not based on, on some kind of core fundamental principles, then it's probably not mm. the most important thing from that unit. We won't, we always end up um, leaving the poor cross-cutting concepts out. Well, let's not go there today. Okay, I just want to let you know, though, Debbie, that um, it, this whole Canada stereotyping thing was all Becky's idea, but I, I did want to end with some other. I just wanted to learn about poutine. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. Heart attack on a plate. <laughs> so good. <laughs> okay, so I have some random questions. What would you do if you open your freezer and there was a penguin inside it? Is this based on Mr. Popper's penguins? Why would there be a penguin in my freezer? Uh, they, they, live in the, they live in cold places like Canada. I know they don't live in Canada. But... You know, the only, places, the only place I have actually seen a penguin in the wild is when I was in South Africa. Cool. <laughs> Not Canada, South Africa. Okay, okay, fine. I get it. That question was weird. I have a, I have a chemistry question for you. Okay. What's the temperature when it's twice as cold as zero degrees? <laughs> really cold? 
Okay. I'm glad uh, there's not a real answer to that. No, there's not. Although I did live in Saskatchewan for a year where every morning when you woke up in the winter, they would give you the temperature, which was usually around minus 30, minus 40 something, which it was Celsius, but it doesn't really matter because in Fahrenheit, <laughs> it's still really cold. Um, and then they would tell you how many minutes you had before your exposed flesh would freeze. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that where it, isn't that about where it crosses over Fahrenheit and Celsius? Something like negative 40? Negative 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to high school in Grand Forks, North Dakota. So my most of my Canada experiences as an eighteen-year-old driving up to Winnipeg, but can't we can't talk a whole lot about that here. Going to Winnipeg. <laughs> All right, Debbie. Um, I I know you don't have anything else to do, but we really do, <laughs> we really do appreciate all your time, and um, I I know I'm gonna. Go back and listen to this and and hear more in there. So I I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for thanks. It was fun. Us. Not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> why does everybody wow. think it's going to be so painful? I don't know. Because because it's not something we've done before. 